Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million. And this is a podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. We want to give a big old shout out to Elizabeth for joining our Patreon community all the way from Australia. We're so excited to have you join us in all of our fun monthly Zoom chats, our Discord hangs, and our bonus Did You Hear episodes happening semi-weekly where we give you the music news you need to know with a feminist take. If you want to also be part of those things and stay up to date on all the feminist news, you can do so at patreon.com slash name three songs. And we also have some other exciting stuff that's been happening in podcast stuff. So we're just going to chat about that for a little bit because apparently the BTS army would die for us, like not to pat ourselves on the back. (laughs) But I feel like we should pat ourselves on the back because since we started this podcast, we've been like, we should learn about K-pop. And I'm like, I don't understand K-pop. And Jenna was like, I'm going to become part of army. It's really really funny because we started this and both Jenna and I were not part of fandom culture anymore. And as we've continued doing this podcast, I've just become more and more frustrated with fandom culture because the more we do research on it, the more I'm like, this is toxic and horrible. You do you because like all of our listeners seem to be like on the good side of fandom, but like the scary side of fandom is terrifying enough for me to just be like, no, thanks. I'm okay. And Jenna's like, LOL, watch me. (laughs) LOL, let me play with fire real quick. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what I have to say for myself. They got me. (laughs) The running joke about K-pop is I just want to know their names. And then you're like months deep into never seeing the light of day again. And that is very much where I'm at. It's been beneficial because it's helped me be able to learn it and understand it more because you are so new at it. So like you understand how to like feed it explain it (laughs) yeah in a way that like i can understand it's just really exciting because as people who have been here for a long time compared to like our newer listeners you guys know that we're just trying to do fellow fangirls justice as well as we can obviously sometimes our personal opinions about certain people get in the way of that (laughs) ashton or win but You know, we're just people and this is a commentary podcast, but it's been really cool watching something that we worked really hard on and that we were really interested in, like resonate with people so much. I think also the thing about BTS that's got me really riled up lately is like, I definitely love and appreciate their music and their art and everything that they've done for ARMY because I see how it's benefited so many people in the conversations I've been having on Twitter, yeah. but What's really gotten me into thinking and talking about BTS all the time is just the misogyny, the racism that comes with how they're constantly talked about in the Western media and like the Western general public. It's just wild, honestly. And I'm like, somebody needs to stand up and fight the fight for BTS because it's like, we all know historically boy bands have been mistreated. And it's so weird being on the other side of it now that I'm so used to listening to boy groups and girl groups within K-pop. It's hard for me to remember that people stigmatize boy bands because it's so normal to me at this 
point. But it's just like basic, basic stuff like that of like, even some of the people tweeting me that I've been talking with are like, I used to be biased against boy bands and against K-pop. And then like, I found BTS and I was like, what changed? And it's like, they realized that we're real human beings and shared real authentic stories and they came to appreciate it. So I think it's just been like an eye-opening experience, honestly. And I feel like it's made me a better critical thinker because a lot of the people in the fan base are also critical thinkers. So it's just like giving me perspective. So I feel like that's helped even with stuff when we're thinking about this podcast. Yeah, because I mean, like a lot of the people who had commented like on our YouTube channel and also just like on Twitter and stuff have been like, yeah, I didn't really care about music at all until I found BTS. And then they got really deep in it. And it's just really interesting to see a boy band that a lot of these people don't even share a language with can resonate so much. And it's just pretty incredible to be able to see that happen. Because as we've talked about in past episodes, especially in our boy band episode, like there's so much stigma around it. And it's like, yes, a lot of them are created specifically with the mindset of teen girls will consume this. But also like it's not just teen girls. And that I think is a lot of the problem is there's always that media bias that, oh, if you're listening to like hot young men sing, it's going to be 13 to 18 year olds. I feel like even when I would go see One Direction, I would be the youngest person there. And I was like 18. Like the first time I saw them on the Today Show, the people around me were all like in their 30s. And I was like, what is happening? But it's like boy band culture doesn't leave you. It's kind of like how in that I used to be normal documentary, how the woman who loved the Beatles was like in her 80s. And she still was like, I would still die for the Beatles. It's like it doesn't leave your system. And how we've talked to other listeners of the podcast. It's like once you like a boy band, you're always trying to feed that fix. You know, you're always trying to get more. Yeah, (laughs) there's always something there. And I mean, I felt that, too. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing is like a misconception about ARMY in general, BTS ARMY, is that they're all teen fangirls when they're not. A lot of the conversations I've been having are with adults. And so there is that age stigma and there is that if you have a fan account online, there's a stigma around that. (laughs) And just at the end of the day, like love what you want to love and don't care what other people think, you know, never let that stop you from loving your favorite band. (laughs) And I mean, like, I don't know. The music industry is just filled with stigma and nonsense and just a bunch of bullshit. Which we're getting into today. Truly, truly. So today we are focusing on some stuff that is pretty relevant to the current conversation on the internet. Also sort of involves BTS, but not really, because today's conversation is going back to our true roots, which is making a problem a feminist issue when (laughs) it's a bigger issue than that. But when the common denominator is that the people dealing with the nonsense of the music industry are predominantly female, and then after female, it's all people of color, it kind of feels like a feminist issue. But also, not just the people who are affected by this issue, but when the people who are in charge are predominantly white men, this is also where the issue really starts. Yeah, true. Because we're talking today about how artists have been essentially trapped in their record deals. Like as we've talked about in our Disney episode and our country episode, we've talked about how artists like Miley and Selena and Demi all had really crappy deals with Hollywood records and how even Sabrina Carpenter 
Wonder basically got sued by her record label by kind of tricking them with a fourth album because she signed a four album deal. And then you have Mickey Guyton, who's been trapped on her label for like a decade and then being like, you have to make white people music. And she's like, but I am a black woman. And so there's countless issues. And recently this has really sparked up conversation online because of the British pop singer Ray, as well as Megan Thee Stallion, because both of them have been very outspoken about their struggles with their record labels. Ray took to Twitter and spoke out very blatantly about what her issues were with Polydor. And she was able to leave the label amicably, which I don't really know how you can leave something amicably when you call them out so loud on Twitter. But that's that's what all the articles say. And then Megan Thee Stallion has had to literally get a restraining order against her record label more than once, which we are going to get into in a little bit. But first, to make this conversation a bit more understandable for us and for our listeners who don't really understand music industry nonsense because this is complete music industry nonsense. We have the lovely Drew Schwartz from Noisy to thank for this 2020 article where he so kindly broke down the three main types of record deals that you can get signed into. So Jenna, do you want to start things off with explaining what the standard royalty deal is? Buckle in, folks. It's a lot of nonsense. (laughs) So first off, we're starting with the standard royalty deal. When an artist signs this type of deal with a label, the company gives them a chunk of cash that goes straight to their bank account known as an advance, which is used to keep them financially afloat while they record their album in addition to fronting the money they need to make it. In exchange, the label gets to own the recordings on that album known as master recordings, along with any revenue those masters generate through sales and streams, though it will pledge to give an artist a percentage of that revenue known as the royalty rate. All of the money the label gives an artist up front is actually a loan, and the artist is obliged to pay that back through the proceeds from their album. According to the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, also known as ASCAP, an artist's royalties rate usually falls somewhere between 10 and 25%, but if an artist secures a royalty rate of 20% for every dollar their album makes, 20 cents goes towards paying off what they owe the label. So once they've paid back all of that money that they were loaned, known as the unrecouped balance, then and only then will they see royalty money hit their bank account. It's so funny because as people who create art ourselves, like with photography, and there's the constant thing of like, oh, exposure can't pay the bills. Like literally musicians are basically working for exposure in hopes of eventually making money because all the money they have is fake. Like it was really interesting. I can't remember which article I was reading, but there was something about how much money Jay Z was given for a record deal and how it was basically like he was fake rich for most of his career until he reached a certain point. And so it's really interesting because it seems like, and we'll get more into this, the more the label believes in the artist, the more money they'll give them so that they confront this idea of luxury. And it's like, it's this really funny thing because I know that the music industry isn't a cult, but it kind of feels culty because it's like they have these people that they give all this money to to like show off their bling and all this stuff and make it seem like being a musician is this lucrative lifestyle so that people who sing and like singing want to aspire to get a record deal and do this and then they just literally put them in a cell and are like fucking create music bitch it's all it's all a facade (laughs) oh my god they lure you in (gasps) they lure you in they set the trap with all the fancy lifestyle the rock star lifestyle 
Yeah, and they owe them so much money. Like, that's what's so insane. It's like the same thing sort of ha- happens with books. It happens with a lot of these things where you get this advance to give you the opportunity to, like, not have to go work at your retail job or wherever you were working beforehand so that you can focus solely on creating your music or writing your book or whatever the case is. But those are the only two jobs that you get, like, an advance and then you have to, like, pay it back. I don't think actors have to do that. Like, actors just get yeah. paid to come do their job. Right. I think so. And even if the movie doesn't recoup like that is a loss and that's why they always talk about like oh the movie did bad at the box office it was a loss for the company they took a loss on this movie because they still had to pay those actors the shit ton of money that they offered them whereas with music that's not the case but okay so speaking of losses if the album doesn't break even if it doesn't pay it back it basically means you never paid the loan back and so because these are usually multi-album record contracts the remainder of the balance carries over to the next record so if you only paid half of the balance back if they give you a million dollars and you've only paid five hundred thousand, that goes down to your next record but it did seem from this article and listeners if you know more than us correct me if i'm wrong but it did seem that if your albums keep doing badly and you get dropped that your slate is just wiped clean because they're like they just i think so. count their losses i think which so. is interesting but also the other thing that blew my mind with this standard royalty deal was that on top of all of that money they then are like oh if you want us to promote it (laughs) and you want us to do marketing which is like a label's fucking job they're like now you start a tab there and so then you owe us more money and so drew breaks this down again by saying let's say the artist received a one million dollar advance and two hundred thousand dollars to record their album leaving them with an unrecouped balance of $1.2 million. If the label puts an additional $200,000 towards marketing and promoting the album and that money is unrecoupable, the artist is now on the hook for $1.4 million. So it's literally like, here's your money for the album, but like if you want us to promote it, here's more money that you then owe us back. And it's like, okay, but if you don't promote it, then I will never be able to give you back the money. And then you'll be like, oh, this album didn't do well. And it's like, whose fault is that then? Again, to just like pull things in random that are happening in pop culture right now. It's like with Simu Liu with Shang-Chi right now, where Disney literally has a fucking Marvel movie that just came out and he's the only one promoting it. Like this pure wholesome being is just like out here being like, I'm a superhero. I manifested this on Twitter. And Disney's barely putting the trailer anywhere and he's the one promoting oh it all over the internet and it's like okay how do you expect a movie to do well if literally the the lead of the movie is the only one fucking talking about it i guess i did see about this on tiktok because there was like some kid who was like no one's promoting this so i'm going to yes it's just this crazy thing to me that in most people's minds you get a record deal because the record label has connections they have a network they have like this vast wide web of people that can help your career succeed this is why people decide to stop being indie if they're having those sorts of successes because they're like, oh, well, this record label's offering me a lot of money. I've seen past artists do really well because of this and they know all these people. And also another thing that we're going to touch on more later on is that a lot of these artists, even when they leave the labels, are like, yeah, I had a really good relationship with the person I was working with. So it's like, where is this getting lost in translation? Record labels are essentially banks 
with connections. Yeah. That's essentially what they are. Also under this deal, the label has no claim over the artist's touring revenue, merch sales, sponsorship money, or anything else not directly tied to the recordings, which is going to differ from some of the other contracts we get into in a minute. Yeah. And I feel like that's the idea that most fans have is like, oh, if we go see their tours, if we buy a shit ton of merch, if we click on their affiliate links, I don't think musicians do affiliate links, but whatever the case is, you know, if we continue to support them outside of music, then they'll be successful because they're going to get that money. But the thing is, is that so many artists are actually assigned to the 360 deal that I feel like a lot of fans don't necessarily know that unless a band that they really like or a band that's really big within their bubble is signed to one. So what a 360 deal is that a label is entitled to a portion of the money earned from everything an artist does related to their career as an entertainer. This can include but is not limited to earnings from record sales and streams, concerts, merchandise, endorsement deals, licensing, which is placing an artist's music in movies, TV shows, commercials, or video games, money artists make by writing songs for other artists, and even acting in movies and TV shows. In an artist-friendly 360 deal, a label might only earn percentages of the income from about four of those revenue streams, such as concerts, streaming, merch, and acting gigs. But according to James Sumatero, who is an entertainment lawyer for over 20 years, many 360 deals will entitle labels to a percentage of an artist's collateral or ancillary activities, which is just a fancy way of saying that they get a cut of everything an artist does for money in the entertainment industry. So basically what this is, is that the label takes a percentage of all of an artist's earnings and that percent applies across the board and that rate will typically be anywhere between 10 and 40%. So it's literally insane. This is the thing is like these contracts are so convoluted that it's like really hard to understand as somebody who's never had to deal with them. My impression would be you would think that a lot of this like licensing merchandising things like you would think if anyone was taking credit for this it would be like the manager you know because managers have to manage so much but in this case it's actually the record label well this is a thing with 360 deals and why a lot of artists agree to sign on to them from at least what i've gotten from what i've read about this and from what i've learned from just like being a fan of bands who have been signed to these deals before is that bands and artists sign to this deal because the label has to be like 100% in to do this because with the 360 deal if the artist doesn't make money then the label doesn't make money and so the Mm. label by signing you to a 360 deal and this is kind of where the gaslighting and manipulation comes into it all where the label's like oh we just think you're so great that we want to have our hand in the pot of everything we want to be working with you on everything so it's like the label is basically love bombing you by being like oh we love you so much that we want to be there with you every step of the way for every single thing that you're doing and the band who most of the time artists who get signed to these like famously Paramore was in a 360 deal and so a lot of their fans were really frustrated for a lot of time because of that there was just like a whole hullabaloo around Paramore I wasn't part of the Paramore fandom so I just remember it by watching what was happening but fans are really upset about it because they felt like Paramore was getting put into a bunch of stuff because the label was just trying to make more money off of them and so I think that that's also a lot of what was going on of like why they were in a lot of movie soundtracks and in a lot of things that people were like they're a scene they're like a scene band why are you putting them in all this mainstream garbage and it's like because they were on a 360 deal and their label's trying 
trying to make more money. But also like you should want your favorite band to be popular. But whatever. That's a whole, that's a whole other discussion. It's one of those things where they are trying to convince you that they really, really support you. And that's why you should sign to this deal, because then they'll be able to support you in every facet of your career and be like, oh, you also want to act. Oh, you also want to do this. That's cool. Like if you sign a 360 deal, we can help you with that. But if you don't, we can't. But like they could, but they won't because they won't make money from it. And also these 360 deals, the breakdown is a little bit different about how they're repaid. So an artist might get five million advance to make five albums with a 20% royalty rate. So the albums are going back to pay that off. And then you might have a $10 million advance for three concert tours with the 70-30 split in the artist's favor. So you have that going to pay off like that specific advance. So this is a little bit different. So for example, if your record flops, but you sell out shows, you can't pay off everything. You can only pay off the concerts. So I think this is interesting because for a really long time, like pre-COVID, so many people were having conversations about how touring and merchandise is the only way that artists make money. And I honestly think it's because of these record deals where nobody's buying records anymore. So they're not getting recouped and touring was the only way for them to like actually make any money, probably if they weren't signed to like a 360 deal. Well, it's a weird thing where since vinyl has made a resurgence, like vinyl sales have gone through the roof over the past, like, I think 10 years, maybe five. Again, I don't understand time, but... So it, it is interesting because like we've talked about a lot in our recent episodes where we've been talking about like BTS fans specifically and how there's a lot more incentive to buy physical albums because of how much other stuff you get with them. But I do think that any artist that has a fandom, their fandom is buying the albums because they like to see them chart, even though, as we've already said, all the charts are broken. But I think that there is that myth that oh my favorite artist personally will only make money if we go see them on tour and we buy their merch but when it comes down to it if your favorite artist is signed to a 360 deal it doesn't matter what you buy because the record label gets a cut no matter what and so then after the 360 deal which sounds like a good idea on paper because as we said the label has their hands in all the pots. We then have the net profit deal, which is actually probably the most favorable deal in some senses. In the net profit deal, the label pays an artist cash advance, puts money to record their album, and fronts the cost of marketing and promoting it, all which is recoupable. Once the record starts making money, the label takes 100% of those earnings until they've recouped all the money they fronted. At that point, the artist and the label then split the net profits from the artist's album, and that split typically ranges from 40-60 in the label's favor or 50-50. So compared to other record deals, this is significantly more artist-friendly because artists are able to break even more quickly than the standard royalty deal or the 360 deal. And they also end up receiving a much larger share of the master royalties. It is interesting in regards to the net profit deal because it sounds bad at first because it's like, oh, they're not making any money, but they were in fact given a huge huge upfront cash amount of money. So it's not necessarily that they're not making money straight away. So it is this interesting thing because I feel like these deals more so and obviously like this isn't proven because I don't know who is signed to this type of deal but it seems like a record label would sign somebody knowing 100% that these albums are going to sell no problem especially because of the fact that usually the split after they've recouped their money is 40-60 in the label's favor or 50-50 because that means that they're expecting to continue to make money once the artist has broken even so I feel like it's one of those things where this is a scenario 
again, I don't know if this is fact because I didn't see anything about it, but this seems like a situation where like a viral sensation gets signed and then they get a net profit deal where it's like, you're going to make this money back in like two days and then you're going to make money for the rest of time or whatever the case is. Like somebody who's a bigger deal, I feel like would get signed to this sort of thing. It's just my assumption based off of how we've read this article where it's like, a 360 deal sounds like something that you give to somebody that you know has absolutely no label knowledge whatsoever is like just gonna say yes because they think that the label is their friend when like the label's not their friend and then a royalty deal sounds like something that you give to people who know like a little bit more who can understand a contract but still don't 100% get it but like assume that the industry is going to make that kind of money and then this one sounds like the deal you give to somebody who comes in with people and are like I'll have my lawyer look over that first. The thing about all these deals is that typically the record label owns the master recordings, which as we know from Taylor Swift, that turned out to not be such a great thing. And so that seems kind of messed up that a label would own the master recordings and the artist doesn't. But if you think about it, this is why the record label needs to make money long term. They're not just a bank, right? Because if they were just a bank, it would just be the loan and you would pay it off and you'd go on your way. But no, no, they must continue making money, which is why they hold on to those recordings or do a split with them so that they can continue making money in the long term. Well, I mean, in some of these articles, they were saying how in some label deals, you'll get your master's back in like 10 years. And then sometimes with independent labels who work more with you and don't take as much money from you while you're working with them, then you don't get your master's back until 70 years after you've died. But I mean, the master's situation is really interesting. And obviously, as Jenna said, it has come up more in the fans understanding of how masters work because of what happened with Taylor and Scooter Braun and everything. But also we had... in September of 2020 with Kanye West having one of his infamous breakdowns on Twitter where he like lashed out at Universal Music Group and was like yelling about how he should have ownership of his masters. He has all this money. He should be able to buy them back. And he insinuated that record companies treated their artists like modern day slaves, which was wild. But he did actually post a PDF of his whole ass contract on Twitter, which was wild. I don't understand legal jargon, so there's absolutely no reason for me to ever read that. But it was just insane seeing all these people on music journalism Twitter being like, wow, we've never had access to this before. Like, this is insane. This is crazy. But also Kanye's crazy. So, you know... It is crazy. I don't think anyone truly understands this stuff unless you work directly with it. Yeah, it's just insane and pretty upsetting in a lot of regards. And so I think that that brings us to trying to at least understand what happened with specifically the Ray situation because I think that she has been super loud and upset about what happened to her with Polydor because basically what was weird with Ray's situation is they signed her to a four album deal and instead of letting her put out albums they're continuously having her put out singles and they're sort of treating her like she's an artist development deal where they're trying to figure out who she is as an artist when she wanted to make R&B music and they're like but look at you you're ethnically questionable so maybe you should make pop music because you look like a pop star and so she kept changing the style of music that she was making in order to make her label happy so that she could put out an album and they just kept putting her on features or having her put out singles and if you look at Ray's Spotify profile she has 17.5 million monthly listeners and her most popular songs have over 200 million 
Queen listens. Her song Bed with Joel Corey and David Guetta is the biggest song so far of 2021 to be released by a British female artist. And the fact that that song on Spotify has 219 million listens and that this girl is still being stopped from putting out albums. Insane. Ray is an extremely, extremely talented singer. I've loved her music for a while and... It's just so sad to see someone get stuck in this where they're like, but your voice is so good. We want you to just feature on other people's tracks, which is not all that she does, but it is a lot of what she does. And it's a lot of what made her so famous and popular. Basically, what had happened with Ray was that on June 11th, she released a single called Call on Me. At this point in time of recording has over 9.5 million listens. And she basically went on Twitter and she wrote, hey, my dear. So for the last seven days, I've woken up crying my eyes out not wanting to get out of bed and feeling so alone these are emotions we usually hide from social media and i've become such an expert at hiding my tears and my pain and i wanted to talk about it today holding it inside and pretending i'm 100 percent fabulous will only hurt more so here it is today i feel like a toilet i'm going to be brave and talk about it you are not alone we can talk about our worries and our tears it's not embarrassing to speak out it is brave hashtag call on me imagine this pain i've been signed to a major label since 2014 and i've had Albums on albums of music, sat in folders collecting dust, songs I am now giving away to A-list artists because I'm still awaiting confirmation that I'm good enough to release an album. For context, in order for an album to be created, the label has to release money for songs to be finished, fees for producers, mixes, masters, and marketing support, etc. I've waited seven years for this day and I am still waiting. So now I'm being told if Call On Me does well, then I can do my album, but there can't be a green light until. Imagine the pressure of me waking up every Every day, frantically looking at numbers and stats, hoping that I can make my bloody first album. I know this is the kind of thing I'm supposed to keep behind closed doors, but I have worked and waited and hustled and given everything I have. And if I'm going to suffer, I'm not going to do it in silence anymore. I've been on a four album record deal since 2014 and haven't been allowed to put out one album. All I care about is the music. I'm sick of being slept on and I'm sick of being in pain about it. This is not business to me. This is so personal. I've done everything they've asked me. I switched genres. I work seven days a week. Ask anyone in the music game they know i'm done being a polite pop star i want to make my album now please that is all i want it's like so heartbreaking oh she also tweeted this selfie as she was crying and i was just like oh my god okay crying selfies are embarrassing but (laughs) but it was fucking real man this was like her heart and soul on the line just like reading this i can barely attempt to imagine the anxiety she must be in for seven years being told okay next time next time next time like this is the gaslighting and manipulation you were talking about they're like oh we love you so much you're so amazing but like you have to do this and this and this for us and then you also have to do this and this and this and this and then we'll see and then every single time you get to that we'll see it's like you need to keep doing more for us and then the pressure of waiting to see whether or not the song is gonna do well i'm sure they've told her that multiple times because all of her songs do well so this is just so so ridiculous and so there was this article in the guardian by rehan jones following up to ray outing polydor for this and the thing that was so insane to me is that they quoted from ted cockle who spent 15 years as a head of record label virgin emi he worked with the likes of lewis capaldi amy winehouse and bastille but basically what he said was that the decision to delay a ray album can make sense from a purely commercial perspective her mini album euphoric sad songs didn't chart when it arrived in 2020 and then rian writes but does that make sense from like a human perspective and then ted 
Tychockle goes on to say, at some point, if the artist is seeing themselves as a recording artist and they've signed an album deal, in order to keep them energized, satiated, and focused, you have to let them make an album. It's a rite of passage. And that fucking pisses me off so much because they're speaking about these artists as if they're not humans with emotions and feelings. They're acting like these are just people that they hire to make the record label money. And they're like, oh, we just have to make them happy. And so it literally sounds like they let Ray make a mini album. So this album has nine songs. So a normal album has usually between like 12 and 15. And it sounds like they let her put this out just to be like, here, sweetie, look, we're, we're, we're letting you do what you want. Now shut the fuck up and continue to make your singles that do really well. Another thing, just thinking about Ray specifically, because she's been a featured artist on so many different songs, people can get pigeonholed into this feature artist category where those songs do really well, but she doesn't actually have a following because she's never been allowed to put out an album. So it makes sense that when she does put out an album, it doesn't do as well as the singles do because the singles cater to a very specific type of audience, you know? Yeah. And honestly, Ray's 2018 EP called Side Tape was one of my most played albums slash EPs of 2018. I was obsessed with this album. It was really good. Also for this Guardian article, they spoke with Jim Abyss, who's a Grammy winning producer. And basically he said that labels sometimes try every combination of every genre and style with a pop star, just like Polydor did with Ray. And he went on to say that because of this, they lose sight of who this artist is. And then it's very easy for the label or management to just never commit to things. And so we see Ray's songs that have productions ranging from Deep House to Afrobeats to R&B and dance pop. And she's arguably lost a strong sense of her identity because of this, because it's like you can't go to like the Ray profile on Spotify and expect to hear music that sounds the same. Like you couldn't just put her music on and be like, oh, I'm going to have a workout out of this because you don't know what you're going to expect song to song. Every song is going to sound different. Like if you're putting on an artist for the specific focus of like, oh, I'm going to go on a nice tranquil walk or like, oh, I'm going to have like a hard workout or like, oh, I want to dance while I'm cooking. You can't necessarily put on her catalog and expect all of the songs to fit the same vibe. Whereas if you put on a Charlie XCX album, you can expect all the songs to fit the same vibe, you know? And so also on the theme of these labels not really viewing their artists as humans, there were stats from the UK music trade body BPI, which said that one in 10 signed artists are expected to succeed commercially. Although industry insiders suggest that that's a generous estimate and that if the relationship does fall apart, any music an artist has made typically remains owned by the label. So they're just completely screwed over. It's just insane that it's like, oh yeah, we expect only like 10% of people to succeed. And it's like, or less yeah but we're gonna sign you anyways when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Yeah, we'll sign you anyways in hopes of this working. But also, if we start to not like you or we start to think that your vision is wrong, we're going to direct you in a new place and your fans are going to get confused and maybe leave. But this also was proven because they spoke to this music industry advisor called Mike Burgess, who explained the label's thinking of it all. And he goes, there are a huge amount of acts that are signed because they might have the thing the label is looking for, or they might not. But it's safer to hoover them up anyway, sign them and retain them. These are humans. I hate it so much. Like, these are creative talents 
talented humans. And especially like when nowadays with how easy it is to like find success online, you don't need these dumb men. And this is the other thing of like what we've talked about a lot. And this has also been mentioned in here about how there's no HR in music for musicians. Like there's no one for them to go to and complain to. Yes, sometimes there are unions or societies or other things, but those don't really have that much power because the big white man in charge is a big white man in charge and they're scary and you can't really do that much as an artist, especially when you're an artist who might not have that much background in understanding entertainment law or just understanding the entertainment industry whatsoever. Because again, this is another thing like fake propaganda in American movies or just like Western movies in general of like oh the goal is to get that record deal look at what happens in every movie about music they get the record deal and the next thing you know they're like doing stadium tours and their lives amazing and they have mansions and 30 girlfriends and everybody is screaming their name and it's like that's not how it works you don't get instant success and sometimes even if you should get instant success you don't because your label is trying to stop that from happening honestly reading this article made me think a lot about our history of boy bands episode with Lou Pearlman and how he saw boy bands and he just immediately saw dollar signs and that's the reason why he got why he made NSYNC and Backstreet Boys that honestly feels like the exact same reason any record labels exist ever (laughs) like the record industry was set up because they saw artists and they saw dollar signs and artists want to make art artists want to create and then Mm -hmm. you're just like trapping them and not letting do that like it's bad it's I mean, I want to say inhumane as go as far as to say inhumane. But I mean, this is the same thing we just saw with Megan Thee Stallion of she's in this, I think it's a 360 deal and her label more than once has tried to block her from putting out music. This just happened recently when she tried to release BTS's Butter remix. They tried to block her for the second time and she had to take them to court. And the label is arguing that it will quote hurt her career for her to do this. But they also asked for $100,000 of compensation in order for her to appear on this track. And Megan has spoken out about how she feels like her label is just in it for the money. And it's like, why are you... I mean, obviously we know why, because of the money. But it's like, it's gross to like trap these artists and not let them be artists because we've seen so many careers tank because they weren't allowed to be themselves and Megan is on a huge high right now and in this Guardian article they also talked to songwriter Coco Morier who's written for the likes of Britney Spears and Demi Lovato and she said that she's seen plenty of young female artists quote lectured and berated by the male studio teams they're collaborating with who are deemed quote a creation of the label and the producers behind them and instead of them being signed on their talent and allowed to have their creative vision so it's like you're just a pretty face with a good voice but you're not gonna have any autonomy we're gonna do everything for you and me saying this right now it's so funny because this is the exact criticism that k-pop gets and we're doing it right here in america folks (laughs) well this is the other thing that's interesting of this is we've also talked a lot specifically on our tiktok about this about how there is this need for Western artists or more specifically American artists to be homegrown and self-made, do all their own work. But it's like Britney Spears, if you've watched any interviews with her or all this stuff, like she talks about how she wanted to learn how to play guitar. She wanted to learn how to write her own lyrics. She wanted to do all of this stuff so that she could have more of a hand in it. But her label didn't view her as a person. They viewed her as a sexy money-making machine. And so you have these women who have the ability because anybody, if you get taught the process of how to write a song, could probably write a song if they put their mind to it. And so it's a situation where people get hated on and talked down about because it's like, oh, they're not they're not an artist. 
they're just a figurehead. They're just a voice. And it's like, no, there's so much more behind it than that. And yet people will take any opportunity they have to critique these women when the label is so in control of everything they're doing. And sometimes it even gets to the point where Britney Spears's career wasn't even able to get to the point where she was allowed to write her own music because she got put in a conservatorship and had a mental breakdown and had to deal with all this nonsense. And then sometimes you have artists like Miley who gets out of their deal and gets to put out the music that they want to put out and do these things where it's like oh now you're seeing them as the artist they quote unquote want to be but some people aren't given that opportunity based off of again the label's preconceived notions of what they should be and so again in this Guardian article they spoke to a black female artist who wanted to remain anonymous and she said with black women sometimes they'll push you into a more commercially white realm or in my personal experience they refuse to see you outside of a stereotype of blackness and make you feel like if you don't conform to that no one will believe leave you as an artist. And this is what's so frustrating is so many of these artists who get stuck in shitty label deals are black women. And so it literally is like, first and foremost, the music industry is racist. And then after that, they're classist because after if you're not a black woman and you're a woman who gets trapped in a label, it's because they're like, oh, they've come from a background where they don't know anything because they haven't, they don't come from money. It's usually like a one parent household or sometimes a two parent household, but both of the parents work three jobs. Like it's always a situation where the parents have absolutely no entertainment street smarts. And so they fuck them over. And it's just so frustrating and exhausting. Also, I mean, to this quote, black artists aren't allowed to exist outside of stereotypes. They're not allowed Mm -hmm. to just be human beings with multitudes. This quote is literally like either you're going to be black as we think you should be, or you're not at all. Or we're going to pretend like you're not black. Like what happened with Ray? Like you're white passing enough to be a white commercially attractive pop star but then on the other side of it you have people a la justin timberlake being free to dive into the world of r&b because he feels like it yeah and it's just really frustrating especially megan the stallion is one of the biggest artists going right now and she's had to deal with so much fucking nonsense throughout her time as a signed artist and it's just crazy because she's sued 1501 certified entertainment for fraud breach of contract negligent misrepresentation and other alleged abuses accusing the company of preventing her from releasing new music and refusing to renegotiate her contract so she's been put through the ringer and it is crazy because i can only imagine how much money this woman has brought in for the people who work with her yeah work for her because that's the thing this is the thing that i think labels forget is that yes they've signed this artist but they're signing somebody to work for that person that's the whole point is the label is supposed to work to make these people successful but the labels have been so blinded by money and riches that they're like no we're in control but if these artists stop signing to record deals you would not exist anymore when i was applying to colleges i wanted to work in the music industry and i have a family member who used to be pretty high up at a record label and he was like there's literally no point in three years record labels will not exist so i like don't understand how they bounce back but in 2010 he was like record labels there is no point because of streaming and the internet we're going to die out and there's probably going to be indie labels that figure out some way to work with artists but major labels are going to die out in three years. And it's like, why did that not happen? (laughs) 
Okay, so bringing this back around to 1501 Entertainment, it is honestly amazing that she's been able to reach the level she has despite her record label doing everything they can possibly to stop her. So I just think that goes to show her talent and her popularity in America. But she's in a position where because she has so much critical success, so much general public support, that she's able to represent herself in court. She's able to take her label to court and we're able to find out about it. Whereas art who don't have that general public support and mainstream success get trapped in situations like these and they're silenced and they can do nothing about it because they don't have that platform and they don't have the money to even take someone to court. So I mean like Ray and Megan Thee Stallion both sort of have somewhat positive endings or like continuations of their story where Ray was allowed to leave Polydor and now she's allowed to do whatever she wants and Megan has enough money and enough capital and enough of a name that she can just keep being like fuck you guys and continue to keep her label off of her back which I'm just hoping that she just completely is able to get away from them soon enough so that she doesn't need to keep putting out money to get them yeah there's gonna be court proceedings in September yeah so we'll see what happens there but I mean we have some proper upsetting stories in the music industry and I feel like a lot of people at least in general and my age group will have remembered Jojo for her song Leave Get Out or Too Little Too Late which were both really big songs or also she starred in the movie Aquamarine with Sarah Paxton and Emma Roberts which is one of the better silly mermaid teen movies that have come out in our lifetime but basically what happened was was that when Jojo was 12 years old she was signed to a Blackground Records and she would go on to spend nearly a decade in a legal battle with this record label and so Jojo's career started off with a bang her and her mom were from LA and they moved them to New Jersey in order to record her first album. At 13 years old, she became the youngest solo artist in Billboard history to score a number one hit with 2004's Leave Get Out. But after that, her career kind of just stalled. As we already said, she did have Too Little Too Late, which also did well, which charted at number two in the US pop charts and number three all around. That was in 2006. But Jojo had signed a seven album deal with Blackground Records. And she writes in an article for Vulture, which was edited and like helped by D Lockett in 2015. She wrote, I had signed a seven album deal and I figured I could put out an album every year or two. I wanted to keep making music with my family so I didn't see it as a huge commitment. And I also believe through conversation and an understanding that if it wasn't working out between us, it would be okay and we could go our separate ways. We were assured that the deal was very normal and the lawyer that I was with at the time said, quote, this is a great deal. You shouldn't look at it any deeper than what it is. You're going to be protected. Jojo continues on to say, we didn't know anything. We thought you know more than us, so you must be right. And that was not the case. But also when she said she wanted to keep making music with her family, she points out that it was just her and her mom. And the family she's referring to is the record label because they treated her like this was a family. And she said that was something that was important to her because they wanted that family vibe. They wanted that support. So she trusted these people. She believed in them. They were love bombing her, as you said, Sarah, in the beginning of this episode. And then after her sophomore LP in 2006, it kind of just dropped off. And she goes on to write, I started getting the sense that things were not right after I did the second album. Vincent Herbert, who had signed me through a production deal to Blackground, left, and I never heard from him again until I was maybe 17 or 18. I never got a concrete explanation for what happened. There wasn't a lot of communication, just a lot of lawyer talk at this point. 
So basically, she got signed, the person left, and she just gets tossed up in the middle and no one knows what to do with her and no one really cares. Yeah, and throughout her time at Blackground, their distribution kept getting acquired through different labels. So during her time there, Blackground's distribution got acquired by Interscope and she goes, because of that, it had already taken a long time. So I was already feeling a certain way about that. But then after that, they lost the distribution deal through Interscope and because of that, JoJo's saying that it started to look like that there was instability and they'd already been to every major distributor since the beginning of their career and they essentially burned a lot of bridges and she didn't want to keep being a casualty of that and so she's just like talking and I feel like a lot of artists have talked about this and we sort of talked about this with Fifi Dobson with her second album how the label kind of was not being upfront with her about her second album and then a couple days before it was supposed to drop they're like we don't want this and later on, she just kind of realized like, oh, it wasn't the direction they wanted. It was kind of too dark. It, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't like it, but they didn't think it fit her vibe correctly, which obviously if she made it, it fit her vibe. But Jojo was saying she would have rather the label just been like, we don't really like your mu- music. We don't want to support you. We kind of think it sucks. <laughs> and then just let her go on her way. But instead, they just kept being like, it'll come out eventually. We'll put it out eventually. And it just never really happened. And also, this is going back to what I just said a minute ago of like trust these artists you sign them for a reason they have artistic ability they have intuition that's how they want to represent themselves i mean i think it's like too many people trying to control too many things like no your image has to be perfect your image has to be like this it's not going to sell honestly what we've seen in the past few years is authenticity sells so if these artists are being themselves they're going to be met with someone out there who identifies with that who will go on to support them with their money and also the point that jojo makes in this article which i found was really interesting is it's like some artists being independent isn't the right choice for them because having a record deal especially for pop artists and the way that Jojo makes pop music feels more beneficial so she was saying how I still think having the support of a major label is really beneficial it felt like I was fighting and doing it on my own for a while yet I had two really successful singles under my belt and I had sold millions of albums and damn it I wanted to do that again I took that into consideration in not going independent because I knew it would be even more of an uphill climb I want all systems to be go but the idea of being locked into another system was scary it still is i'd be lying if i said oh no that doesn't affect me at all i still have a little ptsd but i'm not a little girl who's looking for family for my label anymore and she goes on to say i still stand behind the way i handle things with background because i didn't trash anybody i'm certainly not the person who's struggled and had to file a lawsuit so i mean she eventually got out of the contract and she prior to everybody talking about taylor swift re-recording her albums jojo re-recorded both of her first two albums because she did not have rights to her mask so she recorded both Jojo and The High Road in 2018 to re-release them and she put her own more adult spin on these songs and it was a really powerful moment in music history because you see this girl who was almost every preteen's anthem throughout middle school come back and be this strong woman and just sort of being like look I stand by that music. I'm proud of that music. I'm going to re-record that music and make it accessible again to me and to my fans. I mean, it's also reflected in the stats. I mean, if you look at her Spotify streams, Too Little Too Late has 48 million streams and Leave Get Out has 31 million. So there was definitely the demands for it and people were really supportive when she finally made her comeback. Yeah. I mean, she's super talented and super well-spoken and smart about the whole thing. And it's just so crazy that her situation is so known 
known, but I feel like also not talked about that much because I feel like in some ways the recording industry is like, let's not think about, let's not think about Jojo right now because she dealt with so much shit and it's just so frustrating and so crazy. And this is a weird thing, especially in conjunction with like what Ray was talking about is it's like Jojo proved her worth. Ray proved her worth and yet both of them were stalemated in lots of ways but in Jojo's situation Jojo was putting out her own music and people liked her own music and she had fans like she had like a very strong fan following and yet the label was kind of like "Mm." well it's not even that it's that somebody left the label and then nobody else cared to do anything with her like could you imagine if you had a job and your boss was like oh I got a new job I'm moving on bye and then the rest of the people that are there instead of like you taking over your boss's job or whatever the case is like you keep showing up to work but like nobody acknowledges that you're there nobody talks to you nobody's acknowledging you your money's still there but nobody is paying any like a lick of attention to you like that's what this feels like is like you just show up to work every single day and everybody acts like you're invisible and then one day you're kind of like hey i've been doing my boss's job for like three months why is nobody talking to me and they're like Oh, because you're locked in a contract. (laughs) We don't have to talk to you. You're legally required to be here, but we're not legally required to do anything about it. And so we also have another instance of this that also the internet has paid a lot of attention to throughout time, which is Guy Ferreira. If you were ever on Tumblr, you probably worshipped her existence for one reason or another, because I feel like she's like a quintessential Tumblr girl. Yeah, 2012, 2013, baby. And she has constantly been at odds with her record labels throughout her whole existence as a musician. And in 2015, like this was the first time I think it was been recorded of her going and speaking out against her label. So at the time she was signed to Polydor. So it seems like Polydor has a history of just fucking over their artists and she goes on Twitter and she's talking about how like in general her record label was unhappy with how much she sold in the album she has put out and so she's saying I think it did pretty well considering the circumstances maybe I would have sold more records if I had the resources to do so completely unfair that can even get used against me I'm talking about labels and how they all need new structure and they need to be more creative and supportive of the people that they sign which we completely agree with you there yeah it's all also like it's kind of funny that she calls out like maybe i would have sold more records if you gave me the resources to do so like we're talking about labels need to be marketing albums in order for them to reach the right people in order for them to sell especially since this was like she had a 2012 ep and a 2013 album so it's like she's a brand new artist and you're like no she didn't sell well enough for us literally she's like a little she's literally a cold classic on tumblr how dare you say that (laughs) but like this is a thing also where it's like so she clearly wasn't signed to a 360 deal because if she was they would have put every effort possible into recouping money from her but it's just crazy that you would sign somebody to a label they would have like a relative cult following on the internet and you'd be like yeah we don't want to put marketing budget on you and it's like okay but a marketing budget is just another loan they have to repay so who's it really hurting so also the reason this came up in 2015 is because she's been supposedly due to release her second album called masochism since 2015 but the process has been repeatedly postponed so she took to instagram to say i would just like to clarify for some my silence should not be confused for negligence i don't know a ton about 
Sky Ferreira, but I have friends who like followed her career and it seems like there is very much this running joke that she was the one who kept teasing albums and then not dropping it. Like it was a joke that it was her doing this. And so I think that that aligns with this quote of her saying like, this is not my negligence. This is like out of my control. Yeah, because she has like multiple times been like masochism is coming and like tweeted about how like, oh, it's finally happening. But I feel like somebody must be dangling a carrot like a few feet ahead of her and being like, oh, if you do this, if you do that, because like she has been in a couple TV shows and done a couple of other things during this time where like this album's not coming out. So I feel like this is a situation where her label's like, if you do this, we'll give you your album. And like, it just keeps not happening because she went on to explain that anytime I've ever said anything about music being released, it's because I was led to believe it was happening too. Unfortunately, some absurd circumstances that are beyond my reach kept it from happening. It is my fault for not saying something sooner and letting it all repeat itself. So this was in a post from 2018. So she has been struggling with these label issues since she tried to release Masochism in 2015, but also prior to that, where she has also been signed to both Capital and EMI and has publicly disagreed with them. So she's no stranger to publicly bashing the people who think that they are the hand that feeds her when really they're like not really giving her a lick of food. Well, also, she took to her Instagram story to say, I signed contracts when I was 15 and I'm still paying the consequences for it. Every contract I've ever signed has always been set up to take advantage of me and my work in some way. I have been mentally abused countless times. Gaslighting is a go-to tactic. Suffering isn't currency for having the opportunity to do what you love for a living. So this is literally exactly what we've been saying this whole episode. Gaslighting, manipulation, the mental consequences of this. No wonder artists have so many mental health issues on top of everything else they also have to deal with record labels it's just so crazy because it's kind of like how i said before how when we've talked about radio stations and how i'm like oh conservatives don't deserve music because they just ruin everything but it's like this thing where no matter what level of which you listen to music everybody listens to music Like not everybody watches films, not everybody watches TV, everybody listens to music. And so it's just so crazy to me that this is such a lucrative business and that these artists are wanted by people because there can never be too much music. Like there's always going to be people listening. It's very rare to find artists that have absolutely no listens on Spotify. Like people are listening, people are going to seek out new music, whatever. And yet labels still, even when people have fan followings and have people wanting their music are still just like, well, I don't know. I'm gonna make two million dollars off of you so is this really worth it for me also several of these other artists within the articles we've been reading have gone to point out sometimes record deals work out really well for people right not every Mm -hmm. single record deal is a bad deal but like as Sarah said earlier it just feels like a really outdated model that hasn't adapted to the times and it's a model that is kind of set up to take advantage of artists because we do have other companies trying to make things more fair and equitable for artists and one of those companies is called AWOL and how AWOL works right now is that it offers a fairly standard online distribution deal for which artists sacrifice about 15% of their royalties while keeping ownership of their copyrights but only artists selected by AWOL's A&R team are invited to use the service so it's not open to everyone it's kind of like these artists that they see a lot of potential in and then it's kind of like a pay scale so like as they see the artists doing well 
they'll give them more advanced money. But most notably about AWOL, the artists own their master recordings, which is a really big deal. And so some of the big names you may be familiar with who are signed to AWOL are Love, Rex Orange County, Tom Mish, Rehab. So we do see that this model, it's a new one. It's starting to work for artists and it could definitely be a challenger to the traditional big three record label contracts. I do think it's really interesting how there are tiers to it where the more successful you get, so like the more they see like fans interacting or whatever, the more they're like, oh, maybe we can push them into being more mainstream by giving them like marketing budget and all this other stuff. And so then they they start to like tack on like levels and so I feel like that is a really interesting way to go about it because it's kind of like you start off as an indie musician and then the more success you get you can then become like a quote-unquote major label success story but you're still remaining with the same label but the label is giving you more control over your own music and I feel like that's a really positive way to do things because rather than going from an indie label to then getting signed by a major it's like you have the same experience all through the same people so the hands on your stuff are not constantly changing you're not having something where Warner's having to buy you out of some indie deal where they would have held your masters until you died or what have you you know and so I feel like this is a safer more secure route for a lot of musicians and it's really exciting that this is happening and hopefully with the success of this and the success of these artists we continue to see labels sort of leaning into these things where they are once again actually like helping artists because I feel like that was the whole point to begin with is like record label started to make music more accessible and now instead they're kind of like holding people back. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a challenger to that traditional model and even the CEO of Cobalt who owns AWOL has talked about how artists have been treated in the past and how they're trying to change that. So CEO Willard Adritz says record labels were always like the Hunger Games. 20 go in but only one star comes out. And this is like we talked about earlier, the 10% thing which which seemed like a generous percentage. But, you know, the one superstar pays for all the rest of the flops, right? And so Adrid recognizes that there are countless great artists down the years who've been screened out of the music business because a single gatekeeper decided they weren't worth the risk. Countless artists who have never been able to build those healthy relationships with their audiences or small businesses who never got their chance. And so this is like really, we're seeing this like reframing of this model isn't working anymore. What can we do to actually help artists? What can we do to help artists thrive? when it doesn't need to be this Hunger game situation. And this is, you know, the competition mindset. We always talk about the music industry. It's like, if you're not willing to sacrifice, somebody's standing right behind you who is willing to sacrifice and they're going to take your place if you don't. It's nice to know that there is some hope for the future where we can try and have a more positive outlook on things and know that there's potential for up-and-coming artists that we discover having a better chance at success and less of a chance of the trauma and the PTSD of getting signed to a label and getting fucked over by them especially we've also seen like a lot of musicians themselves creating their own labels and I think in a lot of cases in that regard the relationship is a bit better because the musicians understand what happened in the past and didn't work but I guess for you guys if you want to continue this conversation how do you feel about this like are you in the know of what kind of 
record deals your favorites are signed to? Like, do you know where you should be putting your money? Do you pay attention to this stuff? Is this something that affects you? Because I feel like in talking about the Billboard chart, specifically with BTS and ARMY, we realize that they are very aware of like the Billboard charts and how all that works. So I'm just curious if other people are aware of the labels and deals that their favorites are signed to. Because it's one of those things where you don't necessarily know until it's like the artist you love is being affected by it and then you do everything you can to try to help them. Yeah. I just wonder if like because there has been so much going on, if people are trying to pay more attention in order to like help in the correct way. So if you guys have any thoughts or feelings on that, you can come hit us up on socials, slide in our DMs. We are at Name3Songs on all social media platforms. And if you want more bonus content from us, you can come join us over at patreon.com slash Name3Songs for bonus episodes, access to a Discord server, and so much more. So thanks for joining us this week on Name3Songs. Until next time, never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band. And remember, you're never too cool to listen to JoJo. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review. They really help. If you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode, you can visit Name3Songs.com. 